Welcome back to another episode of You Have My Interest, the show that helps you make smart moves with your money by giving you tips, tricks, and tools to help navigate your wealth journey. I'm your host, Evelyn Clark, Director and Finance Broker at Everland. Before we begin, we would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land from which we are recording and you are listening today. We pay our respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging, always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to our guest episode today on the You Have My Interest podcast. I'm very excited to introduce Baz Komak, who is the director of EQ Property Group. Baz is a property developer, and he started his company in 2019 after very successfully selling his financial planning business that he'd commenced in 2011. His financial planning business was targeted towards tradies and their families, and after selling, he really did want to step more into property development, which he did have some projects on the side to begin with, but wanted to really take that up full-time. And he now has a pipeline of residential, commercial, and NDIS properties that span over both Victoria and Tasmania. So as is someone that I've been wanting to get on the show for a long time now, and it's taken a lot of twisting of his arm to finally agree, but I think you'll get a lot of value from this podcast if you are someone that is looking to get into property development. Even if you are just wondering what the industry involves and what doing a development involves, this episode will take you through sort of those first key steps that you need to take in order to determine whether a site can be developed and then who you need to speak to. Something that Baz touches on and is very strong about is having the right team of people behind you and making sure that you are getting really, really specific advice and that your goals are set up correctly from the beginning to ensure that your project's going to be as profitable and actually meet your overall goals. So without further ado, please welcome Baz. Hi, Baz. Thanks for coming on the show today. Thanks for having me, Evelyn. My pleasure. So I thought today would be a really interesting episode for our listeners because property development is something that not everyone does, but it is a very hyped industry. And you've obviously had quite a significant amount of experience from where you started to where you are now and the different projects that you're looking at sort of starting to dabble in commercial development as well. So I'm definitely going to ask you questions on that side of the spectrum, but I do just want to give our listeners a really good overview on what the actual property development industry entails, whether or not people should be considering getting into property development and the different types of projects that they can do. So to start off with, can you give us a bit of an overview on your journey? How did you get into property development? What have you achieved and what are you looking to do now? Sure. Um, I used to have a financial planning company, which I sold in 2019. And since 2016, I started to learn about property development and understand the different types of developments, how it works, and had a couple of mentors in the space. And in 2019 or 2020, sorry, the start of COVID, I decided to go full-time. I was only doing a couple of projects on the side and I decided that I'm going to run a full-time business in development. And since then, I've done townhouses, backyard projects, and now childcare centers, swim schools, and getting into commercial warehousing as well. Yeah. So quite a journey in terms of starting from, you know, you've got a company also backyard subdivisions. So from that end of the spectrum, right up to commercial development. So there's definitely a very vast array of opportunity for people as long as they understand, I guess, the risks involved in development and they're really meticulous about how they plan it, would you say? Yeah, definitely. Look, development is quite a glorified 
um, and hyped up industry, I would say, especially with all the shows of, you know, renovations and, you know, stories of, and tales of people who have done really well on projects. There's a lot of risk involved. There's a lot of things that could go wrong, especially for the first time developer who isn't, don't know what they don't know. Mm. And yeah, especially when you're getting in for the first time, it's important to have the right advice and the right people around you yep. to make sure that you're not going to make some of those mistakes. Or if you do, at least allow Yeah, absolutely. And so if we look at a bit of an overview of the different types of development that are available to people, let's say starting right at the beginning, someone's got a property on, you know, they've got a large block of land. Maybe there's a house on it. Maybe there isn't. What are some of the things that they can do with that piece of land? And then can you kind of go up to more of the high-rise residential scope? Yeah, sure. Look, um, with development, it, it, it all comes down to the land use. So all of the land, or typically most of the land in, um, around Victoria, and I'm mainly speaking about Victoria because that's where my knowledge lies, is zoned or has a particular purpose that the planning uh, minister or the people involved in planning has benchmarked that particular land and what it's used for. Mm. So, for example, if an area is what we call a general residential GRZ zone, that would only have residential and possibly childcare or some other uses. Now, that use is very specifically de- defined in the schedule of each land. When you, if you're wondering where to get that information, there's um, a free website by the name of Vic Plan mm-hmm. where you're able to generate a report and understand what that specific use is. And yep. above that, I would probably say to engage a town planner yep. or an architect to know very specifically uh, what that land can and cannot be used for. Mm. So as an example, one of the biggest mistakes I see is that people buy a block of land and assume that you know they can build something on the back or they can turn it into four townhouses or whatever it is. Yeah. And then very unfortunately later they find out once they've purchased it, for example, they can only build one dwelling on it. That's called a single dwelling covenant, which is only shows up on the title mm. or it's not actually zoned to have any further density. For example, it might be a low-density residential. It might be restricted to 4,000-metre lots. Yeah. And then they find out that there's nothing that can be done on that land. Okay, cool. So it's not just about looking at a, you know, if you go onto realestate.com and you search for pieces of land that are over 600 square metres and then going, great, I can fit, I can subdivide this and fit two dwellings on it. Or going, let's go for something more about 1,000 square metres and maybe we can fit four, four dwellings. It's not as simple as that. Well, I think it's first very important to understand that in Victoria specifically, yeah. and this is a common mistake where a lot of people in Victoria make, is that they are either mentored or they speak to someone from outside the state. Ah. And what happens is outside the state, there's prescriptive density rules. So, for example, they might say, um, you know, 1,000 square metres, you can do 250 square metre lots. Right. Whereas in Victoria, the first step of the process is to lodge a development application. Right. And the councils don't have prescriptive rules. It's very subjective to what the council wants and what the where the wind's blowing that day, yeah. unfortunately. Yeah, okay. Um, this is something that's caused a lot of issues with, you know, getting developments over the line. I know a lot of people like to go to VCAT because it's it's what council feels about it on the day. Yeah. So, for example, if you have a, a thousand square meter block and you... You can't assume that just because next door did four units on there, that you can do that today. Right. 
because the council, number one, um, the rules at that time when that person did it, for example, the garden space requirements changed in 2016, may have been different. Yeah, okay. So it's always important to have a team of people, for example, a town planner, uh, an architect or a building designer who's able to draw something up for you based on what the council's expectations is today. Mm. And it's also very important to use somebody who understands that council. Yeah. So there's a lot of nightmare stories where I've seen where someone's used, you know, their cousin's friend's architect who's just gotten out of a firm. Yeah. Hasn't really understood that specific council's requirements. Yeah. And designed something uh, where that council has not accepted it or Mm. doesn't want it in that specific locality. Yeah. So, yeah, very important to understand what the specific council's looking for. Mm. Uh, One of those things that council uses as their, you know, um, tool to stop and change developments is called neighborhood character. Okay. Now, there's no definition of what neighborhood character actually is. Right. But the councils can easily just say, well, it's not in line with the character of the neighborhood. Right. What does that mean? No one knows. Okay. But (laughs) it's, it's very subjective to what the council thinks. Yeah, okay. So, for example, if you've got three houses next door that have got um, beautiful weatherboards, very classical feel like you get in your Blackburns and yep. your, you know, Nutter Waddings, for example. Yeah. Um, and you're doing something next door which is, you know, uh, completely metal and has a very interesting facade. Of the like council. industrial. Industrial. Yep. The council don't like that. It's more, you know, Footscray and Collywood. Yeah. Well, they can pose your development based mm-hmm. on the character. Yeah. That makes sense. So what are the steps involved before you actually get to submitting the planning application? Look, the first step I highly suggest is narrowing down what sort of development you want to do. Yeah. So, for example, if you want to build at the back of a property yeah. and, and build a single dwelling, yeah. then I would speak to a draftsman or architect yeah. and maybe a town planner but if that draftsman architect works for that local council and understand it well, that's probably just enough. Yeah. And really understand and give them a give them an address and say, look, I'm thinking about buying this address. Yeah. And these are this is what I'm thinking of doing. Yeah. Can you draw me up a sketch? Just to make sure that it's all going to work because it's not just zoning. There's driveway lengths, there's you know, setbacks and side setbacks, and there's so many rules that a professional who's gone through the training that they have, understands yep. to make sure what you're thinking you're doing will actually work on that site. Yeah, okay. That's what I would do first. Yeah. And then actually one step before that would be actually understanding the numbers if your motivation is financially driven. Yep. Um, and you want to make a profit out of this, which I think most people do. Yeah, I think most people going into property development are looking to, they're looking at generating some sort of profit out of the project. Yeah, yep. so it's very important to understand the numbers behind what you're about to embark on because I can tell you there's a lot of sites out there mm. that are on the market that just don't work yeah. because somebody didn't do their numbers correctly in the first place. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And we might even go through a bit of a, an example site later on and just run some of those numbers verbally with people so that they can get a bit of an understanding on whether or not it does work. Do you get, just on that topic, a bit of a side note, but do you get either other developers or people ringing you up saying, I've got this site, can you run the numbers, does it work? Or they think that it might work and you run the numbers and you find it actually doesn't? Yes, I would say uh, this might be unpopular opinion, Yeah, but 95% of the sites I look at don't work. Okay. So most of our work, most of my work and my team's work involves finding 
sites just, just don't work. And quickly yeah. saying no yeah. rather than saying yes. Yeah, that makes it. And eventually we get to a yes and, and that takes a lot of filtering mm. through, through sites just, just don't work. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it, again, it comes back to development being a quite a hyped industry. Yeah. So people, I'll give you an example of how they go out and find a site. Mm-hmm. For example, they're going to approach their local real estate friend. Yeah. Which, mind you, don't understand numbers well. Yeah. My mates with, and I hope, hopefully they never listen to this, but <laughs> I'm mates with a couple of directors of big real estate firms, and yeah. I can tell you most of them don't understand what the actual numbers are. Yeah. So, for example, when you're buying a site, there's a couple of key numbers that you need to be very mindful of. Yeah. And the first one is how much you're going to buy the site for. Yes, of course. And you ask, well, how do I know how much I'm going to buy the site for? Well, you have to understand your resales. And then you have to understand how much you're going to build it for. Yeah. Now, there's more numbers you need to understand, like GST, stamp duty, your consultant's costs. Um, you know, you've got your finance costs and you've got your agent's costs as well, in yeah. there, which are which are big costs. But the big ones are your, your build costs and your resales. Yeah. And a typical mistake people make is they say, well, I'm going to buy this, say, three-unit site for... 900,000. And when you say three unit site, you mean a site that can be developed into three units to three build up? Yeah. Okay. So they say, I'm going to buy that site. Yeah. And, you know, I'm going to buy it for, say, nine, a million dollars, keep it around numbers, a million dollars. And they say to their agent, How much am I going to sell these end units for? And the agent might say, Oh, you probably sell them for something like 900,000 each. Okay. Great. And then the person does their numbers and they go, oh, I'm going to build each unit for around about 300000 because that's what my mate who's a builder who was known in 10 years has told me. Yeah. For around $300,000 each, wow, the profit looks great. Yeah. And then when they actually get into it and start the project, they realize, ooh, bill costs are a lot higher than what I thought they'd be. Yeah. I'm not going to sell these things as much as I thought I would sell them because why would someone pay, say, $900,000 for a townhouse? when they can buy a block of land for a million dollars in that same area, yeah, right? So then the numbers just start dwindling away mm-hmm. and then they realize, oh, this project actually doesn't work, but they've yep. already bought the site. Yeah. So the, I see that quite a bit. Yeah, okay. And so how do you actually get those numbers? Like what should someone do if they're looking to buy a site to ensure that those numbers are as, I guess, you know, close to accurate as possible? And should people be putting in contingencies on those numbers other than a contingency that you need for actual development? Should they be placing contingencies around those figures? Yeah, definitely. Look, it always blows out, unfortunately. Yeah. But there's always things that you don't know. Yeah. Even on projects today, I get surprised by things that come up. Yeah. And I put that in my notes for next time. Yeah. But there's even things after many projects that I don't know and they still pop up. So, yes, contingencies, the biggest factors that people really need to be aware of is, number one, build costs. Yeah. And as we know in the last, you know, since COVID, build costs have blown out massively. Yeah. And it's caught a lot of people off guard and a lot of people have sites which are doing nothing because their quotes are coming in so high. Mm. It's really important to understand what your build costs are. Yeah. Speak to builders, go out there, speak to fellow developers, speak to maybe quantity surveying firms. Yeah. Look, this is what I think. You may have to pay them a fee. This is what I'm trying to do. How much roughly would that cost me? That might give you some advice. Yeah. The other thing is be very, very cautious of your resale 
and how much you're actually going to send, sell those end products for yeah. is very important. And what I mean by that is that it's important to dig down into the detail. So for example, if I'm building an 18 square um, product, I, I work in squares, but usually people work in square meters. So it's about 167 square meters. Yeah. It's important to go, okay, if I build something for 167 square meters, how much would that market pay for it? Yeah. And really drill down. And what I mean by drill down is not asking one real estate agent the answer and them going, oh, about seven fifty to a million dollars and giving you a massive range. Yeah. Get really, really clear. Have a look at real estate. What's sold? What were the sizes? And then come up with what that market demands, what they're looking for, and what they're paying for realistically. Yeah. And do you also calculate the square meter rate for that area? Like what do you, when you look at the previous sites that have sold, are you then dividing that sale price by the square meterage of the actual dwelling as well so that you're trying to get an actual square meter figure that you can then multiply back out? I, I do do square meter rates. Yeah. It's probably getting a little bit advanced. Yeah. But for the person who's just novice in the game, yeah. keeping it as simple as the size of the product that you're a figure of building, yeah. how much is that going to cost you? What are you realistically going to sell it for? Get yeah. a couple of opinions from three agents, maybe. Yeah. And then that will sort of give you roughly where it's sitting at. The other components that are really important to understand, and I would be seeking professional advice from an accountant who has done these deals before, yep. not just your everyday accountant, from an actual accountant who's done developments, preferably themselves, yeah, okay. um, who, gets the, who gets the financial landscape. But you really need to be mindful of GST. Yeah. Does GST apply on this project? Mm -hmm. And more importantly, the margin scheme. Yeah. And so what is the margin scheme for those who may not be aware? Look, the margin scheme is a GST calculation, yeah. which I would be seeking advice from an accountant about this. Yeah. Uh, but when you sell a product, it allows you to use the land, the amount that you paid for the land, yeah. and only pay GST on the margin that you sold the product for. Right. It gets a little bit technical. Yeah. It's a lot for me to explain in this podcast. Yeah. If you do it correctly, the amount of GST you can pay is a lot less right. than if you don't do it correctly, okay. and it can cost you a lot of money. Yeah. So GST and the margin scheme, work with an accountant or a professional to figure that out. Yeah. The other part is factoring in your agent's selling costs, Yeah. Um, you know, which can account for $20,000 to $30,000 on a, on, a, on a unit. So it's very important to factor that in. Also, your finance costs. Yeah. Your stamp duty yeah. and your consultants costs as well. Yeah. And with the finance costs, you know, as we know that costs often blow out from a development point of view, from the actual building and, and things that come up that you weren't forecasting. What about a time perspective? Do you need to factor in a longer contingency for your finance costs as well? That's a great question. So time is one of the biggest killers in development. Yeah. What you think it's going to take you yeah. will take you a lot longer. Yeah. So I can give you countless examples only because our councils, and I won't get started on how much <laughs> I love our councils in Victoria, Yeah, are so, well, I suppose they would call it inundated with work, but yeah. I'd call it just sheer laziness. Right. <laughs> so lazy, and sometimes projects take two years, three years just to get it through council. Yeah, okay. And look, that might not happen on a simple project. Yeah. It might go through within, you know, eight months to a year. Yeah. But I would definitely be factoring in one and a half years because everything is blowing out at the moment. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. 
And so if you think about how long it takes just to get it through council, you're not even building at that stage. And then if it's the building timeframes are then blowing out on top of that. And then once you've got a finalized product, you then need to sell it. You can see how time can really start to eat away at those profits, particularly if you've had to borrow a significant amount of money and you're paying a high amount of interest. We've had private lenders on the podcast before, so we know the interest rates associated with private lending versus going through development specifically. But depending on where you're getting your financing from as well, that can be tens of thousands of dollars. Yeah, it can. everything can blow out. Mm. And this is why it's important, I say, you know, do a project according to the numbers. Yeah. Not according to your emotions. Yeah. Just do the numbers. And if you don't know the numbers, which most people won't, yeah. is work with a financial professional who does, who can do a feasibility for you. Although it costs you money, it, it'll save you a lot in the long term. Definitely. Because not all projects are worth doing. Yeah. And not all projects are worth are created equal. Yeah. In some cases, you know, a while back ago, I remember a developer was telling me about the project that they've done, four units in Altona. They're bragging about, you know, you know how much money they made and how well they've done, which is typically what happens. Someone will tell you a story and you yeah. think, I'll do the same thing myself. Yeah. And I asked them, I said, how long did this project take you? Yeah. And they were a little bit stunned because it's like they weren't asked that question yeah. very often. Yeah. And they said, oh, it took me four years. Okay. And I was like, okay, do you know in Altona, if you had just did absolutely nothing and just sold your block of land and just held your block of land, that four years time frame and just did nothing, you would have made the exact same amount of money. And that really stuck this person. They were thinking, what? Yeah. And it's just like they hadn't been considered that angle before. Yeah. And it's true for a lot of landowners is that sometimes- it's not even worth doing the project. Yeah. And just sell the block of land with all the build costs and all the headaches. Mm-hmm. You got to ask yourself, is the opportunity cost worth doing this for the next three years or are I just better off selling the land and doing something else? Yeah, correct. Uh, but I'm not saying that either one or the other is correct, but I'm saying it's important to weigh that up. Yeah, definitely. Both sides. So for that exact, uh, for that example that you just gave, Technically, the development itself didn't make any money. It broke even. If the land, it was actually the land cost effectively that would have made that same profit. The development and his feasibility would have returned a net zero. Well, it still yeah. it still made money. It's, it still made the same amount of money yeah. if they had just did nothing and just yeah. sold the land. Yeah, it would have been the same result. Mm. But the, I just found it interesting that that was something that they never considered before. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I wasn't going to ask you on that. Can I, I'll just elaborate on that. Now, that's why I say it's important just to do the numbers. Yeah. Because the numbers, I say, never lie. Mm. And the market's always right. Yeah. And if you just sit down and work that out from the start and make a decision based on that basis, mm. it'll make things a lot easier. Yeah. Is there a benchmark profitability ratio or percentage or dollar value that property developers are looking at? Yeah, good question. I have to be careful how I answer that question. Yeah. Because it all depends on the lens of the person listening to this. Right. So from a professional person who does this day in, day out, yes, there's a there's a profit target. Yeah. Which most developers will aim for these days with construction costs. Very hard to achieve that. But let's just say that twenty percent is yeah. the magical number that everyone talks about. Yeah. Nowadays, you'd be lucky lucky to be getting 14% yeah, on your right. townhouse developments because of your 
margin. But if we're talking about the listeners on this podcast being, you know, first time people, people who are thinking about doubling, yeah, really what I would be looking at is what I call just your cash from cash returns. Okay. So when you're borrowing on residential rates, when you're that the banks uh, potentially doing the development with you mm-hmm. on on a lot lower interest rates. Yeah. Uh, it is important just to look at how much cash am I putting into this project yeah. and how much cash am I getting back out at yeah. the end of it. Makes it very simple. Okay. And, and if, what are you looking for in a cash-on-cash return? Look, I haven't done smaller projects for a while, so I, I really it's hard for me to say. Yeah. But let's say, for example, you're putting $100,000 in, in your own cash and let's say you're getting fifty dollars to $100,000 back the other way, I'd say that's that's a fairly good return. So that's so basically, you're getting your hundred thousand that you put in plus an extra fifty to a hundred. So you're either fifty to a hundred percent, so way around. Yeah, yeah. Um, but don't take my word for that. Yeah, because I haven't done a small project in a while. Yeah, uh, and these days with construction costs and everything blowing out, it is a lot harder. Yeah, but I'd also look at the time frame. Yeah, okay. Uh, very important because if that return is over six years. Well, it's probably not worth it. Mm. If it's over one year, well, that's pretty good. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, so I'd be I'd be looking at the time frame and what is the cash I'm putting in versus what's the cash I'm getting back out. Yeah, awesome. Cool. So a question that I have for you, Baz, is around some of your maybe more maybe more of your first projects that you completed. Or as you say, you're always learning lessons, so you can touch on whichever project you like. But what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned in your development career? Oh, good question. The biggest lessons I've learned is to have the right team yep. around me. So, for example, my lawyer and my accountant are some of my crucial team members yep. because it's very important to have the right structure mm. given your own unique circumstances. Everyone has got unique circumstances, right? Yeah. That you will do your development in. Yeah. And secondly, your risk associated to that development. So having a lawyer mm. or a solicitor which specifically deals in property matters. Yeah. And I'm not talking about your backyard lawyer, no offense to them or anything like that, which yeah. handles fifty different parts of law. Yeah. I'm talking about somebody who does these transactions day in, day out. Yeah. Very important to have the right team giving you the right advice. Mm. Uh, on my first project, I definitely didn't get the right advice and didn't yeah. have the right team members and the structures, the financing, you name it, was all wrong. Yeah. The second part of it is doing very thorough due diligence on each site yeah. before purchase here as there's so many uh, place things that can just go wrong. There's so many pitfalls in development Doing the right due diligence, for example, checking the sewage, checking the stormwater, checking the proposal with an architect or draftsman, having the right town planner on board um, for that council, all those things are, are, are lessons that I've learned the hard way. Yeah. And and making sure that your cash requirements are very well laid out of what amounts of money you're going to need at every stage. Yeah. Over the course of the development. Over the course of the development, yeah. yeah. Really important. Yeah. Especially... If if you're if you're in a full time role earning income, yeah. I'd say you're going to be a lot more relaxed about that. Yeah. Than whether you depend on it like myself as your everyday income. 
and means you can probably take your time a little bit more and not have the financial stress of doing the development or you can wait. I would say, yeah, timing your cash flow to have the right amount of money is still important. Yeah. Because it comes in chunks. Yeah. And it can be years before you get that chunk back. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Long time between drinks. Yeah. <laughs> so why have you started to look at commercial property development now? Uh, look, commercial for me is a lot more complicated in terms of from a developer's perspective. Yeah. I can't speak to when you're purchasing a warehouse or industrial warehouse or however that looks for an everyday purchaser. But from a development perspective, yeah. I really like commercial. Yeah. Um, because it is a lot more complex in terms of the tenants you have to bring in, the numbers and all the rest of it, but it is also a lot more simple because of those reasons. Right. So it's a bit of a dichotomy, but yeah. um, I've gone to commercial mainly because, to answer your question, because residential construction is so expensive. Yeah. And hasn't so made not, a lot of sense in the last couple of years. Yeah, it's big, it's becoming very difficult for developers to get that. Well, as you said, profit margin is very is starting to get squeezed out of the projects, timeframes, all of that sort of thing as well. And has the market, in terms of the resale market, played a played a, played a part in the resi space as well? Like, is there uncertainty about the resale value, or is that still quite strong? Look, it's all market dependent. Yeah. Very specific to which segment of the market we're speaking of. Yeah. Like, yeah. So I know there's parts of the market in Melbourne which have done really well. Yeah. And then there's parts of the market in which have not done so well. Yeah. And so I have to be very, very careful giving blanket statements yeah. because, you know, and, and you have to be careful of people who do give blanket statements because there's so many markets within the market, right? Mm. And I think, for example, your inner ring in the last 12 months of, the, of Melbourne has had very strong growth. Yeah. Right? But your outer ring, for example, your suburbs like Druid and Officer and Warrigal, these areas we've seen land prices coming back yeah. quite a bit. Yeah. Um, and that may be because of the speculation that happens in, the, in those growth suburbs. I don't know. Yeah. But to answer your question, resales in the townhouse space, which is mainly what I would be talking to, have been quite steady or even grown because uh, there's a lack of supply. Yeah, okay. So there's a lot of lack of supply in Victoria because of all the development and, and building that hasn't happened. Yeah. So it's more the structure that's kept its value. Right. As opposed to the land value. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah, that does make sense. The reason why I'm saying that is because people will look at, oh, if it costs me five hundred grand or whatever it is to build a home and then it cost me three fifty to buy this um, land. Yeah. Why would I do that when I can just buy something that's already established and just renovate it? Yeah. It's gonna cost me a lot less. So that that's sort of what's going on in the market at the moment. Or I might just rent and wait for the construction prices, which is cause a massive rent rent rental surge in Melbourne. Yeah. At the moment. Yeah, for sure. I mean there's a lot of factors in play that have attributed to that as well, but definitely construction is had a big impact on uh, rental as well. Yeah, for sure. So I'm really curious. I know we've spoken about this one-on-one in terms of the commercial projects that you're looking at, such as childcare, the swim school centre that you yield and leases is a really big component in the commercial landscape. So how how does an investor look at a commercial site that has an existing business on it effectively 
in terms of being able to purchase that? And how can you then look at the development of that potential site in order to make a profit? Do you understand what I'm... Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Look, commercial is very interesting because it's a lot less sexy compared to residential. Yeah. Residential is very emotionally driven, you know, it's hyped up, it's booming, it, you know, things are going well, et cetera, et cetera. People buy on the, on, on the hype and the newspaper articles. Yeah. Whereas commercials, it's just really um, driven by the numbers. Yeah. Uh, and it's quite a sophisticated space. I love commercial. Yeah. For that reason. Yeah. When you're speaking to real estate agents in the commercial space, they don't talk about what next door sold for as much. They might if it's a similar product. Yeah. But they're talking about more per square meter rates in the area yeah. of land. Yeah. They're talking more about cap rates yeah. and yields that you're getting for that product. Yeah. As opposed to, you know, an emotionally driven market, which is more the resi market. Yeah. Yeah. So to answer your question, in the commercial space, what we look at or what people look at what, before they buy a product. Mm. Generally, and, I, and it depends on the asset class. Yes. Let's let we we can put swim schools, we can put childcare centers. Sorry, we can put like pharmacists, pharmacy yeah. buildings. We could put medical, medical, all in the same uh, box here, where people look at the yield. Yeah. So what they do is they just go, okay, how much rent is this building receiving yeah. at the moment? And if I, as an investor, buy that building, yeah, what is the amount? or yield I would like to accept yeah. for that, depending on the strength of the tenant, depending on the asset class, and depending on the location yeah. of that asset. So, for example, in the childcare space, a childcare center that's completed, yeah. finished, uh, with, a, with a very strong tenant in place, people are going, right, well, if the lease is, say, $450,000 per annum, yeah. I'm happy to accept a five and a half to six percent return or yield on my money. Yeah, and therefore you just get that rent yeah. divided by the yield, and you get the valuation. So let's let's do that example. Okay. So you've got so your so the gross rent is four hundred and fifty thousand. Yeah. And you're happy to accept a five and a half percent, percent yield. yield in a good location with a good tenant. Yep. So if we look at that, four hundred and fifty thousand dollars in gross rental income per annum net of gst net of gst divided by the figure that we're happy to receive on our money so the yield that we're happy to receive on our return for our money in is five and a half percent that's 8.1 million 8.18 million is is how much someone could pay for that site correct so they would be happy to pay up to eight million let's say to receive four hundred and fifty thousand dollars of rental income per annum correct and because they know that that's going to be held over X amount of years, they've got a guaranteed rental income for that period of time and they're consistently receiving 5% or 5.5% year on year. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. And for some people, that may not be acceptable. Yeah. Right. But we're talking for maybe funds. It could be a retiree who doesn't want to take a whole lot of risk. Yeah. Because at the moment, I'm pretty sure you could get your bond rates are sitting at, I think it's about four and a half, somewhere around there. Yeah, okay. Let me just check that before I shoot myself in the foot. That's okay. And you've got things like, I mean, even putting your cash in the bank. So if you look at your very sort of- It's sitting somewhere between four to 4.3. A bond rate. Bond rate. Yeah. yeah. 
and then you've got cash in the bank is re- receiving a certain amount of interest. So these are your low risk, lower yield, let's say, returns. Yeah. Um, and then depending on the riskiness of that return in, in terms of the project, it depends on how much you'd be expecting to receive from it. So based on that, childcare is something that is relatively low risk if people are happy to receive 5.5% on it. Yeah, correct. Yeah. So that's a great point. So yes, because it's government-backed. Government yeah. Um, people or more couples will be working at this point in time moving yeah. forward. There's subsidies involved for childcare to empower couples or more couples to be working to support a higher interest rate, to support a higher inflation. Yeah. So relatively lower risk. Yeah. But then the question is, another asset class in commercial, say, for example, an industrial warehouse. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Will someone be willing to accept the same yield? Probably not. I presume probably not. Probably Probably be looking more around the 6 to 7% mark or something like that. Correct. But the problem with that is is that you've got a lot of owner-occupiers. Yeah who are buying these, right, Mm. and they're happy to pay more. Mm. So that kind of skews the market. It's not an investor-driven market specifically. Yeah. Whereas something like childcare or swim schools or, you know, medical is more of an investor-driven. These are people who are just looking for purely for yields. Yeah. And that might be owner-occupiers, but it's not so much as something like industrial Mm. or other, other areas. Yeah. Interesting. So then looking at the development side of that exact example, if you were looking for a childcare site to then develop a childcare centre on, to then sell or to put a tenant in, and when we're talking about the tenant here, we're talking about, you know, the um, childcare centres, that you, like the brand of childcare centres that you see when you're driving around the streets and that sort of thing. We're, we're talking about the ones that have multiple multiple childcare centres, let's say, around Victoria or whatever location it is. So that's the kind of tenant that you want to get in, someone that's experienced in the childcare. It's not just mum or dad starting a new business type thing. Yeah. I mean, the strength of your tenant is very important. Yeah. And especially people who are buying them at yields that will be looking for that. Yeah. If your tenant's not as strong, then they're not going to pay. The yield will reflect that, basically, the risks that they have to factor in. Yeah. But for someone looking for a childcare side, uh, childcare is a lot more of a complex space yeah. in terms of development. I've seen a lot of permanent sites that are just sitting on the market and doing nothing. Yeah. While some of the agents in the space will tell you that there's a lot of activity and things are happening, I can tell you there's a lot of sites in there yeah. doing absolutely nothing. Yeah. And the reason for that is people look at, because I do a little bit of consulting for others, it's not something I offer to everybody, but yeah. um, I help some other developers with understanding whether their site will be good for childcare. Mm. And it's important that we you look at the ratios of population yeah. versus how many existing or up-and-coming centres there are in that area. Right. So, for example, if you zero to four is the population you're looking at, yeah. if you have an area which is abundant, is zero that, to four year olds. Zero to four year olds. Yeah. yeah, that's that's the age group that you're looking at. Yeah, and if there's an area with a higher density of zero to four year olds, there are areas in Melbourne which have what we call growth suburbs. Yeah, you know they have a lot of younger families. Yeah. who are working and the children are a lot younger as well, and they go out because there's affordability or whatever there might be. Yeah, so you have to pick this a radius which supports the demographic that you're looking to target. That makes sense. And if there's a centre coming up that you don't know about 
and you've lodged your plans and permits and haven't done your homework, well, it's most likely a lot of the operators aren't going to take it. Right. Because they don't want to be competing with someone who's two doors down or whatever And that then sort of diminishes the demand for their particular uh, location. Yeah. So yeah. what I typically do is I look at my demographics and make sure that everything lights up the way it should be. Mm. And the second part of it is I ensure that I have an operator on, on board before I even purchase that site. Yeah. And when you're talking operator, that's your tenant or that's potential tenant. tenant. Yeah. That's yeah. your big, big uh, companies that do this day, day in, day out. Yeah. And look, I can't give away too, too many of my secrets, but <laughs> these operators... Um, some of them I work quite closely, or sometimes I use agents uh, who are very familiar in this space yep. to secure one of the operators for. Yeah. And so are you having conversations with those potential operators prior to securing the site or prior to even looking at an area? Are you saying to them, look, how I've got these three areas in mind. Were your forecasts on any of these areas to begin with? Um, is, you know, if I were to secure something in that particular area, is that something that you're interested in? Yeah, good question. Um, they generally don't give away their secrets, right. I've okay. found, yeah. unless you have a really good relationship with them, right. which does take time. Yeah. So what I would suggest, I find in this space there's a lot of speculators, yeah. people who you know, are looking to flip sides and have leases in place. But if you look at the primary objective of, a, of an operator mm. is they want a childcare center to go ahead. Yeah. They want to do business with you. Yeah. And if you're demonstrating that essentially you're going to keep this center for the long term yeah. and you're a player who's serious in this industry, not just someone coming in and out and speculating or whatever it is, then I find slowly, slowly after some relationship building, they start to open the, themselves up to you. Yeah. But it doesn't happen overnight. So these operators are looking for a secure landlord just as much as you're looking for a secure tenant. 100%. Yeah. yeah. They, they want someone, just like any relationship, where I'm going to be in a relationship with them for the next 20 years. Yeah. Just like any relationship, and they want to know it's stable, they want yep. to know it's taken care of, and they want to know that it's going to work well. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. I love hearing about commercial because I just think it's so, as you say, there's a lot of intricacies involved, but as complicated as it is, it just makes sense. It does. For the financially astute person, yeah. for the everyday person, the, the barriers to entry commercial is a lot more challenging. Yes. You have to have more cash because yeah. the amount that bank is going to lend you is a lot less. Yeah. Typically, six, you know better than me, 60 to 70% yeah. is where- Depending on the side. I mean, childcare is 50 to 60. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And the good news is, is that a lot, a lot We're of- 55 to 65 now, but- <laughs> Yeah. Well, a lot of banks are also will lend- on the strength of the lease. They will, absolutely. Which is awesome. Yeah. That's what I love about commercial. Yeah. If you have a very strong tenant, if you have a very strong lease, uh, that lease is there for the long term, that bank looks at that as income that's coming in yeah. and therefore they'll lend on it. The key problem we've also had is the ICR rules, like as you know. Yeah. Uh, that- and that's interest capitalization ratio, ratio just for anyone that's- Correct, yeah. They're not willing to go over a certain amount of ICR, so that kind of- Yeah. You can be limited by one or the other sometimes. Yeah, exactly. But if you look at that versus residential, banks are, I mean, for someone who's purchasing, it's anywhere from 80 to 95%, right? So if you look at that compared to the commercial game, you do need a far higher cost of capital. Typically, your interest rates are going to be a little bit higher than the resi space as well. Um, and you've got a bit more red tape to sort of run through. And the time frame for a commercial site, is that going to be longer than resi as well? Or Well, good question. The thing with resi which not a lot of the property spruikers talk about, mm. is that 
We have lad tax. Okay. And the thing with lad tax is that as you grow your portfolio, and yes, you can do it in other states and things like that, but generally, when you grow your portfolio, the amount of land tax that you pay is quite substantial. Yeah. And with Resi, it's it's a very sexy market. It's hyped up. Everyone talks about it. So uh, commercial is like the ugly cousin. Yeah, okay. <laughs> where people but it, don't... But it performs. It performs really well, but yeah. people don't look at it because it's not as sexy as the Resi space. Yeah. So... Yeah, a lot of more people go towards Resi because of the less lesser cash inputs that you have to have, mm-hmm. whereas commercial you have to have more cash. Uh, but typically, a lot of people build sort of five properties at Resi. Yep. They realize, see the writing on the wall, see all the land tax, fix my air conditioning, can't kick out your tenant, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And they go towards commercial because, you know, tenants pay most of the alcoholics. Yeah. It's all based on the lease. If you can't deliver on your lease, well, you can kick someone out. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, it's a lot more commercial and a lot less regulated yeah. compared to the sexier cousin. Yeah, definitely. It's res- <laughs> awesome. Well, I really appreciate you spending the time today, Baz, to talk about, you know, both the resi and the commercial side. I definitely think the commercial side is something that people that are looking to grow their wealth and are, you know, financially astute and all of those sorts of things should be actually trying to dabble in and maybe not dabble in straight away, but should be trying to learn and educate themselves on more and more because it is something that forms very, very differently. And there's a lot less information I find out there on commercial as well. So it's kind of just easier and more natural for people to get into resi, but over time they can start to maybe steer that a little bit more um, towards the ugly cousin. But yeah, is there anything else that you think is is worthwhile mentioning or someone that is really looking to get into development where we've talked about some of those things that they should begin with, but is there any sort of last pieces of advice that you would give anyone? For development power, look, I would say uh, everything is very important to understand the lens which you're looking through and why you're doing what you think you're embarking on doing. Yeah. So there's a lot of noise out there. There's a lot of information out there. There's a lot of you know, you have to do this, buy 10 properties, buy 50 properties, do a development, and it's like, well, where do I start? Yeah. And I would say uh, it's really important to just understand what your goal is. Yeah. So as an example, I have been asked advice from quite a few of my girlfriends about what they should do with property, how, well, what sort of portfolio, blah, blah, blah. Mm. Uh, but I spent time with them, give them the advice, and then I find out six months later they bought an apartment. Yeah. And- you know, that's happened quite a few times. And then I think about it a little, I've thought about it. I say, okay, well, why did they buy an apartment? Because the most important thing to that individual was security. Yeah. And it was, you know, having a home for themselves that they're not going to be kicked out of. They're not going to have their rents raised on. No one's, they're not going to have issues with someone not fixing an air conditioner, you know, or have them wanting to put a painting up and having to ask permission. So I would say that if you're, you know, for example, your primary objective is just to have your own home mm. and feel really secure and safe and in your own place, which is generally what a lot of women have found. It is their primary objective, no yeah. matter what, is not to have creeps outside their yeah, apartment, is to have a safe place and to be able to buzz themselves up and yeah. feel, feel safe in that space. And if that's the goal, then I'd say don't listen to any of the noise. Yeah. Go out and just buy your safe, secure place that you want to have for yourself. 
in the area that you want to live in. Yep. Yep. And forget about all the noise. If if it's truly to uh, build wealth and to have some assets behind you, then perhaps you want to consider buying somewhere that's not in your backyard, mm. maybe in another state, and building up your property portfolio that way and renting in the local area yep. where you want to live and not having the headaches of development. Yep. But if development is the route that you want to take, yep. I would suggest maybe starting off on a smaller project, yep. maybe like a backyard project, mm-hmm. you know, enrolling some professionals to help you understand the numbers and all everything involved and understanding that process really well. Mm. And once you've got to know it, then you can easily replicate it time and time again. Yep. But I think that for the first time, it's really important just to get your hands dirty, make sure you've made some money, but understood the process really well yeah. so you could do it. Yeah, but it's slowly. No, absolutely, it did. And then I guess from there, you can slowly increase the scope of that development. You can go to two dwellings, you can go to four, you can do an apartment block if you want, but really depends on the individual. Yeah, absolutely. And I'd say either get a mentor yeah. or just someone who's done it yep. in the space mm. so they can just guide you and make sure that you don't have blowout events that's going to scare you away from ever doing it again. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Awesome. Well, thank you, Baz. And where can people find out more about your projects or get more information on you and potentially if there are developers out there that are looking at specific childcare sites that need a bit of consulting work? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Look, we generally, if you want to follow what we're doing, just check out EQ Property Group. Mm -hmm. But otherwise, I don't really use social media or anything like that. I like to just do my work. Yeah. (laughs) Very good. Thanks, Baz. I really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of You Have My Interest. Remember to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast player. To find out more about how Everlend can help educate and empower you to achieve your goals with finance and property, just visit everlend.com.au forward slash podcast and book in a free discovery call.